Good morning. Will you stand with me as we read from Acts? Acts 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him by saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews joined, also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week in uh, 
the passage we considered, we saw Paul make his defense before the Roman tribunal in Jerusalem. And what occurred after that was that a number of Jews took a vow that they would neither eat nor drink until they put Paul to death. Well, the tribunal heard about that plot, and he moved them under heavy guard during the night to the city of Caesarea, where the next level up in courts exists. There is the uh, Roman governor. It's the seat of the Roman governor, whose name is Felix. And now in Acts 24, Paul makes his appearance to defend himself against uh, the governor of Judea. The Jewish leaders, of course, show up to condemn Paul. But what you need to understand is their condemnation of Paul is simply an extension of already having rejected Jesus because they have either met Jesus in person or have heard the gospel. They have seen God in the flesh or been exposed to God in the flesh and decided that this is not the God that they want to worship. So really what you have going on in this passage is the rendering of two different gods in which the Jewish leaders have been exposed to the most uh, intimate and beautiful expression of God, right? the very image of God, and have said, no, we prefer an image of God rather than the true God. And as a result, you really have a clash, a head-to-head of two different renderings of who God is and how he should be, how he expects to be worshipped. And as a result of that decision, the Jewish leadership has entered into idolatry. Whenever we choose to worship an image of God rather than the true God, we engage in worshiping an idol. And what I want you to see this morning, one of the primary things I want you to see this morning, is that to enter a world of idolatry is to enter a world of lies, of fiction, of unreality, which we often have to participate in fabricating uh, in order to keep that illusion alive. Well, how are we going to see that? I want to consider these, these four elements this morning. Number one, all worship. All human beings worship. Number two, the cost of worshiping the wrong thing. Number three, the freedom of worshiping the right thing. And number four, all worship will be judged. So first, all worship. Now, on a semi-frequent basis, or with some regularity, we remind ourselves here at Rockwell Press that all human beings are worshipers. A human being is created to be loved by God, A human being is created to love because we're created in God's image. A human being cannot choose not to love. And love is simply an act. When we put our love and affections on something, that is an act of worship, ascribing worth to something. Now, your love may be misplaced, or your love may take a very perverted um, way of being communicated, but you can't not love. Every human being is always placing their affections upon something and ascribing it some degree of worth. And this is why the Bible has always spoken of the very essence of our brokenness, right, as the brokenness of our heart, as us being afflicted with a heart of stone. And the very essence of our being made whole is that our heart is made flesh, right? The problem is our affections being put in the wrong place and worshiping the wrong thing. And of course, every significant and best theologian since Augustine has recognized that we are at our core lovers and are driven by the direction of our loves. In this sense, we can say that misplaced love is idolatry. We often talk about idolatry or sin as love being placed upon the wrong thing or loving a good thing too much, giving it more love than it's actually worth. 
Now, when we talk about this notion of placing our love on something, being driven by our loves, which uh, is synonymous with worshiping something in this context, uh, we often think of something kind of um, particularly sinful or heinous or gross. But this is happening on all kinds of levels all the time. And we can think of a much more subdued example of what I'm talking about in the sense of our hearts being given over to forms of idolatry. Imagine... Imagine someone who, at the end of the day, really what they love is to protect a sense of inner peace. Right? They're kind of quiet, reserved, uh, perhaps they keep to themselves, and they find people to be uh, somewhat tiring, and they think that people will consume them, so they try to protect uh, themselves from this, from this world. But they're also faced, as a Christian, right, with the notions that, oh, I'm called to love my neighbor as myself, and I'm called to consider others as more important than myself, and I'm called to wash the feet of other people. Well, all of these things are a bit demanding and uncomfortable for me. So I think what I'll do is I'll sign up for something in the church, uh, say, teaching Sunday school. But the rest of the time is mine. I don't want to be overcommitted or overextended. Right? And so I, I move forward, right? And I could e- I'm like this. I could easily fall into this trap, right? I teach Sunday school. I'm done. I'm going to go home and be quiet and read books the rest of the week, right? And so, so is my righteousness. And I say to myself, I'm being faithful. But I'm creating a pseudo-faithfulness. I'm creating an artificial reality because I'm not actually growing and looking like Jesus. Because to look like Jesus means ultimately that you bleed. You bleed on behalf of others, and I'm not doing that. I'm trying to exercise a very tight control that prevents myself from bleeding on behalf of others. And thus, I, it's a pseudo, it's kind of a pretend faithfulness, not a very deep faithfulness. And in this sense, what I'm really worshiping is not Jesus who calls me to move more and more in his direction. I'm worshiping this sense of inner peace that I want to protect, that I want this place that nobody barges in on and I'm safe and recover and so on and so forth. Right? That's a very simple uh, example of what idolatry might look like. And you might ask yourself at this point, well, what are the places in my life where I really seek, I invest my time, my energy, and my money, and I particularly do that to affect a way of being that doesn't look a lot like Jesus? I'm not moving in the direction of appearing more and more in the image of my Savior, but instead, I'm protecting something that I value highly. Fairly good chance, right? There's some level of idolatry happening in that context. But the point here is simply an example to illustrate to you and to try to help you think about that all human beings worship. In that example, I worship right, my privacy and my quiet and my inner peace right, at the expense of actually growing like Christ. Now, if all of us are struggling with idolatry, uh, we had better understand the consequences and what's involved in that idolatry, which is, brings us to our second point, which is the cost of worshiping the wrong thing. In our passage today, uh, of course, Paul was smuggled in the night to Caesarea, and some days later, the Jews, uh, the Jewish leadership shows up to prosecute Paul, and it's no small contingency. Uh, Ananias, the high priest, is part of the contingency, along with Tertullus, who is a legal eagle, right? The, the uh, Jewish leadership is outsourced. They brought in Tertullus. Uh, his name probably means he's a Roman. And he's come in to be a, uh, you know, the guy who's going to slam dunk Paul before the Roman governor. 
And you kind of get that impression when he begins his argument. As he starts in uh, 24, or chap, or chapter 24, verse 2b, and then into 3, he has nothing but a lot of praise uh, for Felix. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Wow, pretty high praise for Felix. From there, Tertullus goes on to make four charges against Paul. And you can see them following suit. Number one, Paul is a plague. And the word here indicates a, 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 a plague of insects. He's a pestilence. Uh, he's like a, a swarm of locusts going over the land. This is what Paul is. Number two, he stirs up riots among Jews all over the world. Number three, he's a ringleader of a sect called the Nazarenes. And number four, he tried to profane the temple. Now, what I want you to see in this case that Tertullus is making uh, before Felix against Paul is that it's nonsense. Tertullus is absolutely full of it. All right, number one, the Jews hated Felix. Uh, we've got lots of historical evidence that Felix is one of the most corrupt uh, Roman governors taking advantage of the Jews and the people despised him. So Tertullus is doing nothing but blowing smoke. Number two, Paul is a plague. Well, that's hardly a chargeable offense, more of an opinion, right? Tertullus is just throwing out a metaphor to try to sway Felix to think of Paul in a certain way. Paul never stirred up a riot in all his travels around the Mediterranean. Sometimes a riot might result, as a re might result from his preaching and the consequences of preaching like in Ephesus when people are stopping to buy uh, false idols. But even when a riot did occur, Paul did his best to subdue it, not to encourage it. An entirely false charge. Paul's a ringleader of a sect called the Nazarenes. Now, uh, what Tertullus is suggesting is that Paul is leading a cult that will probably result in an insurrection. Of course, Christians aren't a cult, and they're not leaning into any insurrection. But Nazarenes becomes a very early way to describe the Christian movement. And in fact, even today in Arabic and Hebrew, Christians are called Nazarenes uh, as a result of this early uh, name. And then number five, uh, Paul did not try to profane the temple. If you remember, even that charge was based on a mistaken identity. When Jews thought that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple, and he actually had not. Right? So all five assertions, right? Praising Felix, and then the four charges against Paul, none of them are true. They're all fabricated. It's an artificial reality. It's a fiction that Tertullus has created. But it's a fiction that must be created on behalf of the Jewish leadership to maintain their idolatry. If we are going to worship the image of God that we prefer, and we're going to reject Jesus, and we're going to condemn the person representing Jesus, who is Paul then we're going to have to come up with some lies because we don't actually have any real reason to condemn him. And we see that, as a, in this example, we see that idolatry always demands false realities. It always demands fictions to maintain when we engage in worshiping something other than the living and true God. And I have seen this, and you have seen it, and you have done it. So begin to think about the ways that you do it. I have men told me that they are 
They are uh, reasonable and uh, justified when they look at things that they should not look at because their wives do not satisfy. I have had wives say their spending is justified because who could be married to this man? I've heard people say, of course, I can cheat my boss and take off days of work. He's entirely unfair. How can I possibly work for him? All, right? Now, I'm not saying there may not be some element of truth in that, but no truth condones sin. Boys and girls, you, you've already learned this. You learn this as early as you learn to walk. When your parents tell you to go clean up your room, and you go, and you're not cleaning up your room, you're playing. But you hear your parent coming down the hallway, what do you do? You quick act like you're picking up your room. Or maybe something that does happen in my house or doesn't, will not accuse anyone, but you're sent to do your homework. And instead you're texting and reading fiction until you hear one of your parents coming. And then quickly, all of a sudden, the books get propped up and you can hear other books being thrown to the side so that the appearance is given that homework has been done the entire time. Right? The faithfulness has been enacted when it's not true. Right? Why? We're fabricating reality. We're telling false narratives to facilitate our idolatry. Right? Because all disobedience is intimately related to, is driven by worshiping and placing our love upon the wrong thing. And so this is the picture of the terrible world of spiritual darkness and lies, which are also a very heavy weight to bear. The more lies that you tell, the more image that you prop up, the more exhausted you will be. It will suck the life out of you. Uh, And this is the world, uh, the cost of worshiping the wrong thing. Now, Paul shows us something different, and this is our third point, that there's freedom in worshiping the right thing. Paul doesn't have to tell any lies. In fact, he doesn't even seem very concerned about what may be his fate. He simply gets up and he tells the truth. He doesn't flatter Felix in any capacity. And by 2414, Paul makes his confession, but it's not of what he's been charged with. It's of his faith. If you look at verse 14, Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now Paul's done something really pretty impressive there. First of all, he says, listen, we believe the same law and prophets and we believe, and I simply believe that Jesus is the proper result of those law and prophets. So this is very much an internal squabble. But then he goes on to say that I believe in the resurrection uh, of both the just and the unjust. So, therefore, as a result, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul says, I believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And how he'll phrase it in 1 Corinthians is that everyone appears before the judgment seat of God. Everyone gives account of every word and every action. And as a result of that, because I actually believe in that, I monitor my life right now so that I would always have a clear conscience. Because in one sense, I never know when I'm going to appear before that judgment seat. But that future judgment seat, the reality of judgment, informs how he's going to live in the present, which certainly puts the Sadducees on the defense because they don't believe in resurrection. Why do they have any need or any reason to have a clear conscience? If I'm never going to be held accountable 
then why don't I just do what I want to do? Why don't I persecute Paul and worship the idol I want to worship? But Paul is saying, no, I have to be really sensitive to a clear conscience because I actually believe that judgment is going to occur. And so he's committed to his clear conscience, which grants him a, a degree of freedom. Friends, there's nothing more free than righteousness. There's nothing more free than living in a way that your conscience is clear before God because it removes the weight of guilt and shame and allows you to be transparent, as Paul is transparent here and where the Jewish leaders are anything but uh, transparent. Now, some of you, right, maybe not to the, some of you to this extent, some of you somewhere on the road to this extent live as if you're a man with multiple families and multiple cities that don't know about each other. Is that how many lies you're maintaining? How many fabrications you're facilitating, right? So that you can do, worship what you want to do. You can put your love on what you want to put your love on, right? But you can't, you have to facilitate this image because you know that you'd be called out or that you would be guilty or shamed as a result of the truth being known. And perhaps the invitation to you this morning is that you would come clean in some way. That you would, you would decide to put those lies and those artificial realities down and decide to commit yourself to righteousness to the degree that you can live transparently and not be weighed down by that any longer. And part of your decision in that, part of all of our decision, has to be weighted uh, by the fourth point, which is that all worship will be judged. I think this is a severe point that we we often neglect and do not take seriously enough. In our tradition, we often emphasize the grace of God and his forgiveness, and these are all important qualities. But we should not miss the constant reminder in the scriptures that we will stand and be judged. And therefore, we should take our worship pretty seriously. If you notice, after Paul defends himself, no decision is really reached. Uh, Felix is going to wait for uh, Lysias, the uh, tribunal from Jerusalem, to come down and give more information. But this doesn't mean that Paul is done. Felix and his wife, Drusilla, have some interest in the way. Uh, Earlier, and I think it's in verse 22, it is said, uh, yes, 22, Felix has a rather accurate knowledge of the way, and Drusilla is a Jew. So presumably she has some interest in this new sect that is causing all this uh, hubbub, so to speak, in Jerusalem. And so they call him in for a private hearing. And in verse uh, 24, you see Paul begin to address them. Uh, I'm sorry, in verse 25, he begins to address them and says, uh, he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Then it says, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. Now, in part, we know that Felix wants a bribe from Paul, which is all well and good. It wasn't legal but it was pretty standard practice uh, then and is pretty standard practice in many places of the world now. But the word there that Felix is alarmed is a very strong word in the Greek. It suggests almost a sense of panic. Now why does Paul's address suddenly make Felix feel a sense of panic? What's put him on edge? What did Paul talk about? Righteousness, what it means to be right before God, self-control, one's responsibility to actually exercise discipline over one's affections and desires and will, and the judgment of God, that all will give an account for what they have decided to do and to invest in. 
In other words, Paul is saying that the gospel has very serious ethical implications. One cannot confess faith in Jesus without actually ordering one's life to follow Jesus. And this might have put Felix on the defensive. Drusilla, at 16, uh, Felix wooed her away from her first husband so that she could become his third wife. And Felix is also known for his mistreatment of the Jewish people. So whether it's his mistreatment of women or his mistreatment of the Jewish people, Felix has lots of reasons to be a little bit nervous if you start talking about judgment before God. And so he panics and says, yeah, Paul, enough for today. We'll hear more from you later. That's a pretty interesting notion, particularly, as I said uh, at the start of this point, we have a tendency to emphasize grace and forgiveness, and rightly so. It is the beginning of our faith. But if there is not an obedience that accompanies that and that honors that, right, our testimony to what Christ has done remains incomplete. And so I find it interesting, telling, challenging, and convicting that Paul would choose in this short exhortation to Felix to emphasize self-control. Let me think about self-control. It's not something that pops up very often in the necessarily as you're reading through scripture until you actually look for it realize that it pops up all the time pops up in almost every book after the gospels in galatians 5 it's named a fruit of the spirit and first corinthians 7 says that satan has particular opportunity to tempt you in places where you lack self-control in first corinthians 9 we're told that it's essential to sanctification peter makes the same point in second peter 1 And Paul puts it particularly well in uh, Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. So you can turn there if you have your Bibles. Titus 2, 11 to 13, where Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, did you get that? Sometimes we have the great temptation to say, oh, well, my salvation is secure in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm simply waiting then for his arrival or my death in which everything will be wound up, and I'll just live life as I want to in the meantime, which is very different than what Paul seems to be describing here, in which he says, that uh, our role is to uh, be training us up, um, sorry, for the grace of God has appeared. Why has this grace appeared? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We're called to renounce worldly passions and ungodliness and to exercise self-control that we might live godly lives. Well, how do you know If you're exercising self-control and growing in godliness, or if you're actually living in a kind of pseudo-righteousness that really has more to do with idolatry than it does with self-control. Based on our passage, one good way to know would be to ask yourself, how many lies are you telling? How many embellishments? Do you have five drinks but say you had two? Do you take some hydrocodone, but say that you took a leave? Do you say your relationships at work are well and proper, but really you've crossed a number of emotional boundaries? And how often do you embellish? 
I did a, you paint a picture that you worked a little harder than you actually did. Or you spent a little more time with the kids than you actually did. Or you invested in your homework a little more than you actually did. Just so you put a little shine on the righteousness that you're trying to communicate. Or if we were to ask it a different way on the other side, what if someone asks you how you're doing? What if the real answer is lousy? Life stinks. I feel like God just asked me to eat a poop sandwich. Right? But you don't say that. You say, fine. Good. Right? Why? Do you feel unfaithful if you admit that there's a degree of misery or un- lack of satisfaction in life? Well, from either side, realize any lie indicates idolatry. Whether you're lying to hide something bad or you're lying to protect something that's good, right? do you think God actually needs you to defend him or to paint a picture that he's doing things that he's actually not? Maybe it was God's intent for you to have suffering that week or maybe he desires for you to engage a season of misery or maybe that's the result of your own brokenness and you need to say, I'm miserable and now that I've admitted it, maybe I need to actually explore why I'm miserable. Lay down that image, right, both of God and of yourself, and try to pursue the truth and transparency that we see in Paul as a result of his commitment to being, uh, his commitment to, uh, to righteousness, to having a clear conscience before God. As we examine these lies, I think one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is at the end of the day, which God really do we prefer? You, to understand, I think, what's going on at this, in this passage, you have to understand that it is a rendering of two different gods. Right? The Jewish leaders, the difference between the Jewish leaders and Paul is not that one worships and one doesn't. The difference between the two is that they worship two different gods. The Jewish leaders have been exposed to God in Christ and have said, no, thank you. It's not that they don't like God, It's that they can't believe that God would be this humble and gracious, and they prefer not to follow him. That's where Paul says, no, this really is God who's taken on human form. And so to the degree that we lie and make manifestations to protect idolatry, is it even perhaps to protect an image of God that we prefer to the actual person who showed up in history? And the reality is that you prefer the same God that the Jewish leadership prefers one who blesses for obedience and one who curses for disobedience because you feel safer with that God than you do with the person who shows up in history and says, I want you to lay down all your rights and privileges and pick up your cross and follow after me. That's a a much different request. That's a much more radical incarnation of the Godhead and demands much more. And yet it is that invitation to actually know the freedom of what it is to follow Christ. I, I read a fun parable that made me, uh, that I thought went well with the passage. And uh, I'll close with this parable. It's a parable of a world in which you could be arrested and prosecuted for following Jesus, much like what is happening to Paul in our passage. And in the parable, a man is arrested who is a Christian and is brought into the court, and he's filled with fear. Because to be arrested in this world as a Christian is a very serious thing. 
And so he's put on trial, and he uh, feels the weight of the evidence that is being brought before him. His Bible, which is the dog-eared and the gilded edges are worn off, and there are notes in every margin. And they bring in his journal, which is filled with reflection about theology and God and poetry that expresses his love for him. And the worship that he listens to, the body of digital music that he has, over and over and over again. And he's, he's almost resigned himself to the fate that, that uh, besets him when, uh, when the judge renders the verdict of not guilty. He thinks, wait, that's great. I'm, I'm off the hook. But then he says, wait a minute. Maybe to be found not guilty in this in this case, is worse than being found guilty. And then he starts to think, well, there's lots of evidence that has been brought. And he says, starts to take issue with the judge. How did you not find me guilty? What about, what about my Bible? I said, well, it proves you like to be a student. What about my journal and my poetry? Well, it's clear that you think of yourself as quite the poet and all the music that I listen to. It doesn't indicate or condemn you uh, in this court and so the man says, but this is madness, you shout. It would seem that no evidence would convince you. Not so, says the judge. He goes on, the court is indifferent toward your Bible reading and church attendance. There's no concern for worship with words and a pen. Continue to develop your theology and use it to paint pictures of love. We have no interest in such armchair artists who spend their time creating images of a better world. We exist only for those who would lay down that brush and their life in a Christ-like endeavor to create a better world. So until you live as Christ and his followers did, until you challenge this system and become a thorn in our side, until you die to yourself and offer your body to the flames, until then, my friend, you are no enemy of ours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your humility and graciousness is difficult to grasp. We confess to you today that we would prefer at times an older revelation of you than the revelation that demands so much. But would you remind us this morning, even as we come to your table, that it is this revelation in the incarnation that calls us to, uh, to a new place, a place in which we are freed, uh, freed from... Uh, a tyranny of legalism and freed from a constant um, call to make ourselves worthy of uh, your love and responsive in a way that has to be measured. And instead, you have just poured out your love for us. But would that love so transform us that we are simply not, not like the Jewish leaders in our passage. Uh, they have forgotten more theology than we will know. And yet we have such a tendency to follow in their steps. Instead, would you help us to understand the grace and love and winsomeness of Jesus in such a way that we become like Paul and we seek a clear conscience and look toward, forward toward the, uh, to the day of judgment, not, not being afraid, but being excited that we run into your arms. We pray that you would meet us and nourish us at this table. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.